Greetings and welcome. My name's James White, and we've been doing a series of studies on the subject of the sufficiency, inspiration, inerrancy of the Christian scriptures, the Holy Bible. We've been looking specifically at a series of assertions, articles written by a group of evangelical scholars in 1978, written in the form of an affirmation and denial about certain aspects of what inspiration means and what it does not mean, because it's very important for Christians to realize that in the Bible, we are commanded as believers to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us, yet with gentleness and reverence. Anyone who asks us sees that our life is different than people of the world, that, that we have a, a confidence, a peace, a hope that others do not. When people ask us about what gives us that hope, what in a very changing world allows us to have a, an unchanging hope in the mercy of God toward us, that we are to be ready to give a defense, an answer. And in doing so, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. And when people ask questions, sometimes they're more than questions, sometimes they are objections. We need to be quick to hear what the objections are, to accurately ascertain what they are, and then give an answer that is honoring to God and is honest to the Word of God. And so we're looking at some articles that were written that give us an insight into what we mean when we speak of the inspiration of the Christian scriptures. And so I'd like to continue looking at those so we may understand exactly where we confess, what we confess about the nature of the Bible. The next article reads as follows, we affirm the propriety of using inerrancy as a theological term with reference to the complete truthfulness of scripture. We deny that it is proper to evaluate Scripture according to standards of truth and error that are alien to its usage or purpose. We further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena such as a lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, the reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole and round numbers, the topical arrangement of metrical variant selections of material and parallel accounts, or the use of free citations. Now, that sounds like an awful lot of stuff. What we're referring to there? Well, when we talk about the complete truthfulness of the Bible, we are not, for example, stating that the Bible never quotes someone telling a lie. The Bible records the actions of evil men. And so when evil men speak, the Bible will truthfully record what they say, but it does not mean that their falsehoods, even when they are lying, are somehow to be charged to the, to the text of Scripture. Uh, we also do not expect that an ancient document such as the Bible is going to use modern language. Uh, for example, there is uh, the allegation that in the Old Testament, uh, some of the descriptions of animals and the association of one animal with another animal kind does not fit the use of genus and species that we use today. But remember, for the Bible to be meaningful to the people to whom it was originally revealed, it has to speak in their language. It would do no good to expect men who lived 2,000 years ago to be using language that we ourselves are using today based upon discoveries that had not been made in that day. Uh, for example, if you're going to tell the people of Israel that there are certain kinds of animals that they can and cannot eat as a part of the holiness code of the Old Testament, you're going to have to describe those animals in a way that's going to be useful to them, not to us today. 
And so, for example, the Bible once refers to one kind of animal chewing the cud. Well, today that has a specific meaning, and we can, we can go into the biology of that and, and the structures that have to be in a particular animal for them to truly chew the cud. And some say, oh, well, the Bible says this animal chews the cud, and it doesn't. But in reality, if you watch that animal, it looks like it does, and that would be the only way that an ancient person could function is on the basis of what it looked like, not on the basis of going over to a library and grabbing a biology textbook on exactly how this particular animal is put together. So when we make that kind of a demand of the scriptures, what we're saying is it only can be revealed to modern people and in modern language rather than being revealed in the ancient context to those ancient people. Another good example of this is found in 1 Kings chapter 7, uh, where we read, Now he made the sea of cast metal ten cubits from brim to brim, circular in form, and its height was five cubits and thirty cubits in circumference. So here you have a description of something that is made for the temple, and it's ten cubits across and thirty cubits around. Well, if you did well in your geometry classes, uh, you know that, uh, that there is a, a mathematical number called pi. And pi tells you the relationship between something's circumference and its diameter. Well, this would come up with a, a value of pi of about 3. It's 3.14159265.4, and it keeps on going forever and ever. Some people would actually say, well, no, this, this should say it wasn't 30 cubits in circumference. It was 31.41, uh, et cetera, et cetera, as if we know for certain it was exactly round and so on and so forth. This is that kind of demand that an ancient document have modern levels of scientific accuracy to it and saying, well, there's an error because it's only 30 cubits in, in circumference. That's the kind of thing that this is talking about. Or when it, when it talks about observations of nature, when the Bible talks about the sun rising and the sun setting, people say, ah, oh, see, uh, they thought that the sun was moving and, and all the rest of this stuff. And yet we today, even though we recognize the movement of celestial bodies and we can uh, figure out exactly when the sun's going to rise and when it's going to set, you can go onto the internet today and you can go to scientific websites and you can get that information and it'll still use terms like sunrise and sunset. Why? Because that's how we speak. We're talking about observation of these things from our perspective. And so while some people might say, well, of course, I mean, why would you accuse the Bible of errors uh, based upon that kind of, uh, of, of really modern snobbery as if we somehow are so much better than the ancient world? But many people do exactly that. And that's why this article addresses this particular, this particular subject. The next article says, we affirm the unity and internal consistency of Scripture. We deny the alleged errors and discrepancies that have not yet been resolved violate the truth claims of the Bible. Now, I'd like to divide that one up. We affirm the unity and internal consistency of Scripture. What does that mean? Well, in this particular article, it is talking about the fact that the Scriptures are consistent with themselves over against allegations of error. But there's something else I would also like to try to emphasize here. Many people in today's world want to cut the Bible up into little pieces and place them at odds with one another. Sometimes they'll do this to the same author. They'll, they'll pit Paul against Paul or Peter against Peter. 
And instead of allowing the scriptures to, uh, to be innocent until proven guilty, to allow them to speak with one voice and to speak harmoniously and to determine that, they just automatically assume that there is contradiction and error to be found in the text of scripture. The result is a, a tremendous degradation of trust in the Bible. And, and when people have been taught that you can't trust the Bible, that you can't figure out what the Bible is saying because you're starting with the assumption that it is contradictory to itself. Uh, the result is that if these people remain religious at all, if they go into the ministry, if they do anything like that at all, they have nothing to say. They, have, they, have, they cannot preach with authority because they're really left with nothing more than man's opinions. Well, it's my opinion that it might be better if you trusted in Jesus. That's not what the apostles taught. The apostles did not go into the world. The apostles did not turn the world upside down, to use the language of Acts, by saying, well, in our opinion, it would be good to sort of believe that maybe Jesus rose from the dead. No, they proclaimed that as an absolute fact. They proclaimed the fact that God had testified that Jesus is truly the Messiah, He's truly the Son of God, by raising Him from the dead. And it wasn't a matter of, well, this is just our opinion. This is what God has done. And to say otherwise is to, in essence, call God a liar. And so the internal consistency of Scripture is something that has become very precious to me over the years. I began defending the faith and responding to those who were attacking the Christian faith as a very young man. And I have had to encounter many atheists and people who've attacked the validity of the Bible from a lot of different perspectives, philosophical perspectives, linguistical, historical, whatever it might be. And the consistency of Scripture, which I have come to observe, and sometimes those questions do leave me having to do study, having to dig ever deeper into the text. But what I've found is that when I dig deeper, I find this consistency. I find the Word of God giving answers to those who would say this is not, in fact, inspired Scripture. And it is that internal consistency over time that has become very precious to me. That internal consistency is something you will find, but again, it takes time, it takes growth. It's not something that simply happens overnight. So then the second part of the article says, we deny that alleged errors and discrepancies that have not yet been resolved violate the truth claims of the Bible. Now that sounds a little bit like double talk, doesn't it? Because it talks about errors and discrepancies that have not yet been resolved. Does that mean there are errors and discrepancies? Well, there are certain places in the text of Scripture where we do not have enough of the background information to be able to explain exactly why one historical account differs from another historical account. But we've recognized over history that when there were many more of those kinds of alleged discrepancies, that as we did gain more historical understanding, we were able to find out why there were such differences. There may be situations about historical events that we will never be able to find, uh, for example, documentation from other cultures or something that would help us to come to understand what the context originally was. For hundreds of years, for example, skeptics had said that, that the Bible mentioned all sorts of nations and peoples that had actually never existed. Then, as our knowledge of the Middle East grew, we began to find references to these very nations and people that skeptics had for a long time said the Bible was an error in even mentioning. And so the Bible has a track record. 
And when we are able to determine the historical backgrounds, the archaeological backgrounds of elements of the scriptures, we discover that the scriptures are in fact true. And so when we have other areas where we don't have that kind of information, should we automatically convict the scripture of error at that point? Or say we don't have sufficient information to know exactly what was taking place so as to explain why this one text says this, this one text says. Very rarely is it a situation where the scriptures are saying X is true here and not X is true here. That would be a classical contradiction. But there are situations where, for example, a real obvious one, is how long certain kings reigned in the historical sections of the scriptures. When we look at those particular uh, events, sometimes people go, well, this says he reigned for, for eight years, and this over here says that he reigned for only six years. And we've discovered over time, for example, that ancient peoples determined how long their kings reigned differently from nation to nation. Some nations, for example, had what was called an accession year, where he, he, came, he ascended to the throne during that time, and that wasn't included as, as his first year. Uh, other ancient uh, peoples would start their year in the spring and run spring to spring, others fall to fall. And so they would count years differently than other people did. There's so much of this kind of information that makes it difficult uh, to make meaningful accusations against these historical sources because there's so much information that comes together that is necessary for us to understand. And so what all this is saying is, is, is not double talk. It's just simply saying that while there are still problems that we need to examine, just the fact that there is a problem there, especially when we don't have enough information to put it into its context and really come up with a full explanation, does not mean that the Bible itself is untrue. The next article says this, We affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy is grounded in the teaching of the Bible about inspiration. We deny that Jesus' teaching about Scripture may be dismissed by appeals to accommodation or to any natural limitation of his humanity. Now, those are two points that I've already raised to you, so I'll only be brief. The doctrine of inerrancy is grounded in the teaching of the Bible about inspiration. And what is the teaching of the Bible about inspiration? That the Scripture is God-breathed, that God carried these men along who were speaking from him by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not going to lead men into error as he is carrying them along. Just as Jesus called him the spirit of truth, we can be confident that he's not going to carry these men into areas of error, but only into areas of truth as they speak forth from God. And so it is that grounding of Scripture as as God-breathed revelation that is the foundation for believing that it is accurate in those things that it addresses. It doesn't address all areas, but in the things that it does address, that it will be accurate in those areas. The denial that is found here is really one that it makes reference to uh, many liberal theologians today who would say, well, okay, we'll, get, we'll grant to you that Jesus had a very high view of Scripture, and we will grant to you that that he, he seemed to believe that Moses uh, actually wrote Scripture and, and that Scripture could not be broken. And, and he said, thus saith the Lord, and he thought that the Scriptures were, uh, in fact, to God speaking. But he was just a man. He was just a prophet. And even as a prophet, that didn't mean that he knew everything. And, and so he, uh, either he was just accommodating himself to his audience, which means he knew better, which might raise issues about whether he was being honest or not, uh, or he himself did not know. He was just a product of his time, and, 
And so we can't really put much, uh, much stock into what he had to say. Now, obviously, for someone who calls himself a Christian, uh, it's pretty difficult to put Jesus in a situation of being just a, an errant human being who may or may not have been right about what he said, because if he may or may not have been right about what he said about, about the Scriptures and about uh, the resurrection, maybe he may or may not have been right about what he said about salvation itself and heaven and the atonement and forgiveness of sins and all those things that we say we are trusting him about. And so it's difficult for a Christian to put himself in that type of a situation. Obviously, most of the time, those who raise these kinds of objections aren't really trusting Jesus as their Savior to begin with. Uh, they may be culturally Christian, but, uh, but not religiously Christian in the sense of truly finding in Christ their all in all and a Savior uh, from sin itself. And so that's what this particular section is looking at. Now, the next article says, we affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy has been an integral to the church's faith throughout its history. We deny that inerrancy is a doctrine invented by scholastic Protestantism or it is a reactionary position postulated in response to negative higher criticism. Now, what does this refer to? It's basically saying that if you were to go back through church history, you would discover that the history of Christians believing this high view of Scripture is long indeed. In fact, I would argue uh, that you have to uh, only go to certain oddities in church history to find anyone who questioned these things, that the standard view of everyone in church history who claimed Jesus Christ as their Savior would be in any way orthodox in their theology believed that the Bible was the inspired Word of God, and they did not engage in any kind of destructive criticism uh, of it. Uh, that has been integral to the church throughout its history, and it's not just in the modern period because of the rise of destructive liberal criticism that somehow we've come up with this concept of inerrancy. It was a given all along because if something was the Word of God and God Himself is perfect, the idea of imperfections in His revelation just simply didn't suggest itself to people for a long, long time. It has only been in modern years that this has become something that is central to what people are saying in criticism of the Scriptures. The next article says, we affirm that the Holy Spirit bears witness to the Scriptures, assuring believers of the truthfulness of God's written Word. We deny that this witness of the Holy Spirit operates in isolation from or against Scripture. Now, of course, you've heard me say this before, and that is that the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit work together, Spirit and the Word together. They are in perfect harmony with one another. And here is a strong denial that the witness of the Holy Spirit operates in isolation from or witness against the Scriptures. Who is the Holy Spirit but the Spirit of truth? Who brought the Scriptures into existence but the Holy Spirit of God Himself? And so how could the Holy Spirit testify, the Spirit of truth testify, that anything other than what has come from Him is the very Word of God? And so that testimony is always going to be consistent. The next article says, we affirm that the text of Scripture is to be interpreted by grammatico-historical exegesis, taking account of its literary form and devices, and that Scripture is to interpret Scripture. We deny the legitimacy of any treatment of the text or quest for sources lying behind it that leads to relativizing, dehistoricizing, or discounting its teaching or rejecting its claims of authorship. Now, one of the things that we most definitely need to do is is to discuss this issue of exegesis. And in our next time together, uh, that's what we'll be doing. We'll be looking at how we can rightly handle 
of the Word of God. And that's what this is emphasizing, is that we need to allow the Scriptures to speak within their own context. We need to allow the original authors to define what their intention was first before we try to make any kind of application in any type of modern situation. The vast majority of errors that Christians make or errors that critics of Christianity make is based upon this idea of isolating the text of Scripture from its original context and placing it in some foreign context. In the vast majority of instances, that is where the problems arise. And so what this article is saying is we need to use sound rules of interpretation, just the very same rules, in essence, that we would use to interpret almost any ancient document with some additions due to the concept of, of consistency across authors. But generally, the same kind of rules that we would apply in reading almost any ancient document or most of the time any modern document are the rules that we need to utilize as we examine the text of Scripture itself. And then the denial is very important. We deny the legitimacy of any treatment of the text or quest for sources lying behind it. What are they referring to? Well, unfortunately, a large portion of scholarship today spends its time uh, having assumed from the beginning that the Bible is errant and is inconsistent with itself. What they do is they start looking for the sources, the theoretical sources behind what the authors of Scripture are saying. And so what they do then is since we know that there's no consistency in the Bible from their perspective, then what sources, what contradictory sources were these people using and deriving their, their text of Scripture from? And so even though they don't have manuscripts to back any of these things up, uh, they start taking the text of the Bible apart and saying, well, I, theor I theorize that this came from uh, this kind of group of people or this came from this kind of an author. And, and they, they can't show you any documents that substantiate this, but entire schools of thought and entire books are published where it's nothing but this, this quest for these other sources that ends up really tearing the very heart out of the text of Scripture itself and results in a, in a discounting of its teaching and saying, really all we have here uh, is the work of a number of different editors who have pulled things together and when we say, well, where do you, where do you get that historically? Where do you, well, I start with the idea that, that whatever the Bible is, it can't be what Christians have always believed it to be. Whatever the Bible is, Je Jesus couldn't have been who Christians have believed him to be, and, and Moses couldn't have been who, uh, who the Jewish people always believed him to be. And, and so uh, we, we start with the idea that, that we have all this editing and this redaction going on, and uh, we, we just start with that as our basic assumption, and then we move forward from there. The result is, when you look at the Bible as nothing more than the opinions of, of unknown individuals, editors, and people who are changing stories, and literally making stories up as they're going along, you have no place left to stand. What happens to the message of, message of Scripture when you believe that that's the nature of Scripture itself? You can't proclaim that message with any kind of of authority. You can't proclaim that message as being relevant to, to all of mankind. You can't say Jesus Christ is Lord. You have to say, well, in the opinion of some unknown editors at times in the past, it may be possible that maybe Jesus had some important things to say, but we're not really certain that he said anything that we actually have in the Bible. That's not an overly compelling message. 
And if you are listening today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that wasn't the message that caused you to bow the knee to him. Instead, we need to look at the Bible, allow it to be in the context in which it was originally written, honor it as we handle it in that way. That's what we'll be looking at in our next study together. Thank you.